Well, amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's turn in those to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 6, and we're going to get there in just a few minutes, but I want to do a couple of things just by way of introduction so that we're not just dropping in on the text. Where we're going to be reading this morning comes at the end of 1 Peter, and it's some of the last remarks that he's going to make in that book. But to help us understand a little bit of where we're going, I want to hit some of the high points, or at least one of the high points, on the way there. So, many of us remember this huge Christian marketing campaign years ago, WWJD. You could buy WWJD products everywhere. And it's still kind of a thing, and and, and I'm not criticizing that. Except to say this, that comes from a passage in 1 Peter, and that's 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 21. He writes this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And there was actually a book written at the end of the 1800s called In His Steps, where a whole town decided what we're going to do is... Before we do anything, we're going to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And then we're going to do that. And the whole book is about what happens to this town and all the things that occur because everybody asks the question, what would Jesus do? Well, going on to verse 22, Peter talks about what Jesus would do and did. Well, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The point of the passage is that Jesus endured suffering. And you and I are walking in his steps when we endure suffering in a way that honors the Lord and demonstrates that we trust him. Now, I'm all for let's be like Jesus. Let's be Christ-like. That's always a good idea. The problem with WWJD, the problem with I'm going to do what Jesus would do, is that you assume that you know what Jesus would do in every single circumstance. And when Jesus was walking around on this earth, he did not do what people thought he was going to do. He did not do what people thought he should do. The Pharisees especially got mad because he did not fulfill their expectations. And honestly, people who claim to know what Jesus would do in every single circumstance, they make me nervous. That's scary to just assume that we know exactly what Jesus would do, what Jesus would say in every circumstance. And my experience has been the people who know Exactly what Jesus would do in a given circumstance, they're about as fun as a plate of turnip greens. They are not exciting people to be around at all, and typically very legalistic, and that's not what Jesus was like at all. The point of the passage was how Jesus endured suffering. In all of 1 Peter, he writes to Christians who were undergoing suffering, many of whom have been persecuted, many of whom have been scattered, 
And we're fast forwarding to the end of the book where Peter's summing it all up. Now, maybe this morning, maybe in our lives right now, we're not enduring the persecution that they were, at least yet. But many of us are suffering in one way or another. Many of us are in crisis. Many of us are in trials. And you might be thinking this morning, well, you know, actually, things are going pretty good. Well, you know what? Don't worry. It's coming. It's coming. How we bear up under suffering, how we endure suffering as Christians, it reveals volumes about the true condition of our faith. And if nothing else, it exposes the areas of our lives where we are not trusting God. So what does Peter say to encourage these suffering Christians? What, what is he going to, what counsel, what word of comfort is he going to give them? What is the comfort, what is the word of encouragement that we get from the rock this morning? Well, as we unpack the verses that we're going to look at this morning, there are six particular elements, and this is what preachers do. I'll just warn you in advance, yes, they all rhyme. But that's how we're going to unpack that and put some structure around that. So the first one is this, downward direction. Downward direction. And we're going to start in verse 6. What word of comfort, what word of encouragement does Peter have for Christians who are suffering? Here we go. Humble yourselves. You don't look very encouraged. Let me try it again. Humble yourselves, therefore. No? No, that, that, that didn't do it either. All right. Well, let's see what he's talking about here. First three words. Peter starts in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore. Why is he saying therefore? Because if we go back to verse 5, Peter is directly quoting a verse from Proverbs 3.34, which says this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's also quoted directly in James 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we have a choice. We can humble ourselves and receive grace, or we can be proud and receive opposition. None of us wants to be receive opposition. None of us wants to be opposed by God. But that's what it's saying. So humble yourselves. Now get this. You ever thought about this before? When you think about the fruit of the Spirit, and I deliberately say it's the fruit of the Spirit, it's not the fruits of the Spirit, it's all of those things together are the fruit of the Spirit, wouldn't you think that out of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, out of the fruit of the Spirit, one of those things would be humility? I mean, because you don't know a godly person who is not in some way, shape, or form, humble. Because about the time that we start to sniff arrogance from somebody, we tend to exclude them from thinking of them as a godly person. And yet, humility is not a fruit of the Spirit. That, that's incredible. That, that's amazing. Here's the thing about it. Humility... I'm not saying that the Spirit couldn't produce that in our lives, but Scripture talks about how... It's not something that the Spirit produces in us necessarily. We humble ourselves. We humble ourselves. It's something that we do. It's something that we have a part in, that we take the action in. Now, you might be asking, 
why on earth would I need to humble myself? Well, thank you for answering the question for me. Thank you for proving my point. If we're asking the question, why would I need to humble myself? It's because we're prideful. And if you hear that and you're saying, well, not me, again, thank you for proving my point. Pride is a tough one. You know, you start to think that you're, you're getting closer to holiness and you're really walking with the Lord Man, that pride is slippery. It's a tough one. And often, the very thing that prevents us from being able to see our own pride is our own pride. Pride is our innate ability to make everything about ourselves. It's all about me. If we want it, it should be ours. If we say it, It's right, and it's not to be questioned by anybody else. And if we think it, well, then that's how it is. Long time ago, as Chris referred to earlier, I was in a preaching class in college. I don't mean to be mean here, but I I hope somewhere in the sovereignty of God, some of the guys that were in that preaching class are not preaching somewhere in America today. It was frightening. I don't think Chris was in this particular class, and I'm not telling a story on Chris. Let me just define that right now. But we were all sitting in class one day, and there was a, there was a guy that was preaching his little sermon, and he was talking about pride. And I, I, I promise you this actually happened in preaching class. He's talking about pride, and he's doing this analogy of pride. And here he goes. He said, pride has five letters, P, R, I, D, and E. And what's in the middle of pride? I. I'm not going to do it, but he proceeded to show us I and flipped off the whole class. And we're half asleep and thinking, wait a minute, he can't do that. And I know, knowing the guy, he had no idea what he did. He had no realization that he just slipped off the whole class. But I thought about that over the years. And isn't that exactly what pride is? Is it basically, it's that attitude in our minds and our hearts where it just basically flips off the rest of the world and all that matters is me and everybody else can just fry. And if you don't think you're prideful and if I don't think I'm prideful, think about how you act Behind the wheel of a car. Sometimes I really think that is the last part of my depravity to go, is my attitude towards other drivers. And I've I've discovered the reason why I get so frustrated, and maybe you get so frustrated with other drivers, it really comes down to pride. Because where you have to be, where I have to be, is more important than where they have to be, and they should get out of your way, right? It's prideful. Well, pride is subtle. Because even our self-pity is a form of pride. Self-pity is a form of pride because it says, my suffering, the things that are going on in my life that are difficult, it's a whole lot worse than what you're going through. You know, if I had your problems, no big deal. But if you had mine, oh no, there's no way you can handle it. The person that makes everything about themselves is a threat 
when we're prideful and we're around somebody that makes everything about themselves, they're a threat to us because we can't make everything about ourselves if they're making everything about themselves. We see that. Even churches can be prideful. Churches have their little niche that, that they like to pat themselves on the back for. I mean, we're, we're, a, we're a big church. We're a mega church. Pat, pat, pat. We're spirit-filled, which, I mean, the fruit of the spirit is love. So, you know, that's the first one listed. So I, I guess that means they really love each other, right? That, that's probably, probably not what they mean by that. Here's another one. We're relevant. All of the other churches out there, they're irrelevant, but we're a relevant church. But here's another one. We're a Bible-teaching church. I get that. I value that. But what I want to know is, for the Bible-teaching churches, are we any more obedient to Scripture than those other churches? Because we're a Bible-teaching church. Well, do we actually obey that? I love what C.S. Lewis said. Defined it really well. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's just making it not all about you. And what an amazing time we have before us to do that. All right, now, none of that's encouraging. None of that warms the heart. And it also doesn't explain how to humble ourselves. But before we get to the how, Peter is going to speak to the why. And yes, I know we're only three words into it, but bear with me. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Okay, now we're getting some specifics here. The why is because God gives grace to the humble, but he talks about under the mighty hand of God. That's associated all throughout the scripture with the, the, the mighty things that God has done. How God brought the people out of it, the people of Israel out of Egypt. It, it, yes, it refers to wrath. Yes, it it refers to the the awesome acts of God, but it also speaks to refuge and protection and shelter. It's this picture of the storm is raging all around you, but you're protected. And nothing is getting to you. You see the storm, you see the turmoil, but under the protection of the mighty hand of God, nothing's getting to you there. And it says, there's nothing that can happen to me outside of what God allows. And if God allows this thing in my life under the protection of his hand, if God allows this thing in my life, then it is for my good and for his glory. Right now. Right now, in our lives, as Christians, as believers, God is right now doing the most loving thing in your circumstances. And he's doing what God is doing in your life, in your circumstances right now, is what you would do if you knew what God knew. What God is doing right now is the most loving thing. The only way that we're in danger... The, the only time that we step out of that protection is when we're not in a posture of humility under the mighty hand of God. We can step out from that. We, we can expose ourselves to problems and dangers that didn't have to be there. But in a posture of humility under the mighty hand of God, nothing can happen to us that he does not allow. Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, 
Here's the next part of it. So at the proper time, he may exalt you. Well, we, we get nervous around that word exalt because fine, you know, God is exalted. He is high and lifted up, but he's saying that we would be exalted. And this just isn't talking about at the end of the age, when we get to heaven, there is a reward. Yes, there is a reward, and that's ultimate. And if we really understood eternity, looking at every problem that we're going to have in our lives over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, every problem that we have, if we understood it in light of eternity, it's really not that big of a deal. But it's hard to see it that way sometimes. But what we're talking about here with this with this being exalted at the proper time, this isn't just about heaven. This isn't just about sometime way in the future. Proper time, that word that it uses there, it's really just one word in the Greek, and it's kairos. And that's a very significant word. That's a very important word because it, it, what they're trying to do with the translation saying proper time is, is get some words around that. But the, the idea of kairos would be to say it like this way. It's the time. It's the time of God's choosing. It's the time when God sees fit to do something. Something like Psalms 1 verse 3, it says it like this. The man who trusts God is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. A a tree, even a tree planted by rivers of water isn't always bearing fruit. It bears fruit in its season. There, there's times of preparation. There's times of growing. There, there's times of, of getting ready, but it bears the fruit in its season. A lot of us know that, that passage, that long passage in Ecclesiastes 3, where it talks about there's a time for this and a time for that. Well, Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There is a there is a proper time. There is a kairos for things to happen. And it doesn't mean when it says this that we're we're exalted in the sense like th- that God is exalted over all, but there is a sense that we are exalted in that we are lifted, maybe lifted out of a situation or raised up in a situation. So if today you find yourself in a season of waiting, in a season of testing, a season of humbling, hear this. God is at work in your life, and right now is not the time, but that kairos, that the time, it's coming. Trust him and wait, but that period of time, that, that, that time of God's appointment is coming. It's not always going to be like it is today. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So we go from downward direction. Now we're going to focus correction. Focus correction. The next part of the verse says this. Casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. Now we talked about how do you humble yourself? Well, here it is. This is the how. And we've got to understand this part of the the flow of the text. The text is not saying, okay, over here, humble yourselves and then also cast your anxieties. The flow of the text is this, humble yourselves, comma, casting your anxieties. Or maybe better yet, humble yourselves by 
Casting your anxieties. Those things are definitely directly connected. We humble ourselves by casting our anxieties. It's not something additional that we do. It's something added to the list. It's all connected. So what's the connection? What in the world does humbling ourselves and casting our anxieties have to do with each other? Why why are those things connected? Casting our anxieties on him is what we do to humble ourselves. So one thing, if not the thing... That's keeping us from casting our anxieties on him is our pride. It's our pride. One of the reasons why we don't humble ourselves by casting our anxieties on him is when we do that, we're giving up the illusion that we're in control. Part of the reason why there's so much fear and hysteria right now is a lot of the people that believed that they were in control before are understanding right now, oh, no, you're not. There there are outside things, and, and you think that you can control your little world. No, you can't. But follow the rabbit trail of every single one of our anxieties, and we'll find what we are trusting in instead of God. Our anxieties reveal what we're trusting in, our idols, the things that we fear more of losing this thing than what we really want, than how we really want God. One of my favorite pastors, Timothy Keller, said it this way, and this is so true in our lives. Worry is the belief that we have that God will get it wrong. And bitterness is the belief that we have that God got it wrong. We worry because we think God's going to get it wrong, and we're bitter because we think there's something in our lives that God didn't do it right, that God didn't do it correctly. Our anxieties, every one of them, every one of our anxieties is rooted in the belief that we know better than God. And that we ourselves are more committed to our own good than God is. That's, that's driving it. That's at the heart of it. There's a lot of areas of our lives, even mature believers. God, I'm more than happy to entrust this area of my life to you. But when it comes to something that's really important to you, when it comes to something that's near and dear to your heart, We don't actually say this out loud. We don't actually articulate this. But the idea is, you know what, God, better, better, better let me take, let me handle this one. I I can probably do a much better job of handling this situation or this area of my life than you can. So let me, let me handle it. I, I got it all under control here. That's idolatry. That's not humbling ourselves. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God by casting our anxieties on him. And why do we do that? What's at the heart of why we would do that? Because he cares for us. More than we believe, more than we realize, more than we understand, because he cares for us. And the very thing that right now is causing our anxiety He cares for that, that area of our lives, that area of our circumstances. He cares for that. So trust him with it. 
that God will do what is best and he'll do it at the right time. So how do you know? I hear that. I want that. I see that in Scripture. How do you know that you've done that? How do you know that you've cast that burden, that you have taken it out of your hands and literally put it in God's hands? One of the ways that you know is when suddenly God is bigger than whatever's causing your anxiety. Now, obviously, God's always been bigger than your, what's causing your stress, what's causing your anxiety. But one of the things that we need to do, the first thing that we need to do in prayer is get God bigger than the problem. Because as long as the problem is bigger than God, we are seeing it incorrectly. We are seeing it wrongly. But when God gets bigger than our problem, when we enlarge our perspective to see the, the situation the way that he sees it, suddenly there's peace. Suddenly there's freedom from anxiety. And I imagine many of you have experienced this, but, but if not, th- th- this, is, this is such a beautiful thing. Have you ever been walking through a situation and had a problem and, and you've prayed to the Lord about it? And you've, you've laid it at his feet? And then right in the middle of that situation, you've discovered, I have this amazing peace right now. And nothing's changed in the circumstance. Nothing's changed, but you're going, I should be panicking right now, but I have this incredible peace. It's what it's supposed to be. And we keep praying and we keep trusting and we keep casting until that peace comes, until that that sense of victory comes, because really the circumstances are going to do what they're going to do. And God's in control of that. But to experience his peace Right in the middle of the storm, the old hymn says, When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Downward direction, focus correction. Number three, watchful protection. Verse eight, watchful protection starting in verse eight. Peter says, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Now, whenever we hear a verse about the devil or start talking about spiritual warfare things, there's usually two camps of people. One camp is, oh man, spiritual warfare. We're excited. It, it's like they're playing the, the Rocky music in the background. You know, just love that kind of stuff. And then other people, it's, oh, oh no, we're going to stay away from that. Not, not, I don't want to hear about that. I want to talk about that. A complete denial. Well, two extremes. Years ago, the church I was attending at the time in our college department, we had a little thing happen in the college Bible study one Sunday morning. Thankfully, I was not there to see this exactly happen, but it was described for me. One of the people in the college department had invited a friend. And this girl came and was a part of the Bible study. And right during the middle of the Bible study, she literally fell out of her chair and was convulsing on the floor. 
one of the guys in the room who I guess was really excited about spiritual warfare, and he'd been looking for an opportunity like this. He gets up out of his chair, and he runs over, and he starts casting demons out, and he starts in the name of Jesus this and that. And The problem was she was not demon-possessed. The poor girl was having an epileptic seizure. And... uh, Kind of moved through that, but uh, funny thing, I don't think she ever visited that uh, Bible study anymore. Just a, a church growth, you know, principle in general is people don't like to be have demons cast out of them if they don't actually have a demon. That just you know, word to the wise there. But this this person. And maybe you've been around this person, or maybe this was a phase in your your Christian walk that you went through. Every problem to this person is a spiritual problem. If you're sick, it's the enemy. If you're tempted, it's the enemy. If you're tired, it's the enemy. If someone annoys you, they're the enemy. No, 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 no. This is a fallen and broken world. It has germs. We get sick. We get tempted because we have a sin nature. The Bible talks about how the reason why we're able to be tempted is because we have that sin nature. Honestly, maybe you're just tired because you're not as young as you used to be. Maybe some B12 or something. Please hear this. When it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to the things of the enemy, Jesus has already said he has all authority. Stop yelling at the enemy and stop calling the trials that God is allowing in your life. Don't don't call those the work of the enemy. God's allowing those things. As a child of God, there is nothing that the enemy can do in your life that God doesn't allow him to do. Remember Job. Satan came before God and asked permission from God to do stuff in Job's life. And God said, you can do this, but you cannot do these things. The enemy does not have free reign to do whatever he pleases. The problem is when our focus becomes on the enemy and all the things the enemy's doing, instead of on Jesus, then our focus is way out of place And the enemies won that battle. That's one extreme. Well, the other extreme is everybody's so people that are so uncomfortable with the idea of the enemy. And the idea is just, well, you know, if I just ignore him, then maybe he'll ignore me. It would be nice if it would work like that. But scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, not ignore the devil. And he will flee from you. And the text here says it's not just that the adversary, the devil, it's your adversary, the devil, is looking for someone to devour. As a child of God, as a Christian, you personally have a real and personal enemy. He can't kill you. He can't take you to hell. He can't just do whatever he pleases. But he's really good at disguising himself as an angel of light. 
I call it the demonic in disguise. The demonic in disguise, three ways that we see that. Here's some alliteration for you. Number one, the demonic in disguise is about distraction. Have you ever noticed when you get ready to pray or you get ready to worship, how a million thoughts from a million different directions come flooding into your mind? You set some time aside to pray or to read scripture or to worship in the evening. And I mean, goodness, you haven't been productive all day long, but you sit down to pray and just all kinds of thoughts are flooding into your mind. Not even bad thoughts, just thoughts. It's like, oh, my goodness, where is this distraction coming from? This is crazy. I guess there's somebody who doesn't really want you to pray and doesn't really want you to worship. So there's distraction that's going to come. Number two, discouragement. In the form of the enemy loves to exaggerate our anxieties. Make it a whole lot worse than it is. And maybe if you're one of these people like me where you can be laying at bed at night, in bed at night and your mind gets away with you and your mind is your own worst enemy and all of a sudden you've created these elaborate scenarios that this is going to happen and this is going to happen and I'm going to say this and they're going to say that and none of that is even realistic. But our minds get away from us because the enemy is trying to exaggerate those anxieties. And oh, when you fail, when you mess up, here he comes. Piling on. You know, you would have never done that if you really loved God. You would have never really done that if you were a good Christian. Blah, blah, blah. Distraction, discouragement, and number three is distance. Distance. This is this nagging sense that God's disappointed with you all the time and disgusted by you. But it's not related to anything specific. It's just a a vague sense of God's ticked off with you and you don't know what you did. You've confessed everything that you know to confess. You're you're trying to walk with God the best you know how to do. And there's this sense, this vague sense that God's mad at you, that God's disappointed with you. He's disgusted by you. It is completely based in lies. Because that's what the enemy has been doing from the very beginning is trying to make God look bad and whispering in our ears the same way that he whispered in the ears of Eve and Adam. Oh, God's holding out on you. God's really not looking out for you. God, God really isn't looking out for your best. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Pray your fears. Cast your anxiety. Your feelings lie. My feelings lie. And they change, don't they? His word stands. Number four, mutual connection. Mutual connection. The next phrase of the passage says this, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Well, how does that help? I, I mean, I, I literally I used to read that and think, well, that's great. Other people are suffering, too. How does that help? It does help. A few weeks ago. I was at a point of a lot of discouragement 
And I was hearing the voice of the enemy. Now, this is going to make me sound like, and maybe it's true, but I, I feel like a terrible friend for what I'm about to tell you. But I had a phone conversation with my friend. And I was just kind of griping about some things and, and the discouragement. And as he was talking and he was telling me the things that, that he was sensing Oh, it's always going to be this way. Or even if the situation changes, it's going to be the same situation, just with different clothing on. It's always going to be like this, blah, blah, blah. You know how we get. And he was saying some really similar things. But the more we talked, we realized this is the enemy. And this is the enemy trying to bring discouragement to both of us. And you know something, the beautiful thing about it was, as I'm listening to my friend share his discouragement, I got a lot of comfort from that. I know that makes me a terrible friend, but no, the whole thing was this. When, when somebody else was enduring that, when somebody else was walking through that, and suddenly it wasn't just me, oh, 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 this is the enemy. This is what the enemy is trying to do. And by the way, I'm not the only one that's walking in this thing. Somebody said one time, you know, when you found a true friend, when it's that moment in the friendship, it's the moment at the relationship where there's that sense of, oh, you too, huh? You, oh, you can identify, you can see that. Let me tell you who your, your great friends are. The people that you can sit down, have a cup of coffee with, have a meal with, and you can just be real with them and honest with them and know that you're loved and that you're not judged and you don't have to be something that you're not in their presence. Those are great people to have in your life. It just made me feel a lot better that a brother in Christ was experiencing the same thing. This is the Christian walk. If you're not facing a battle, if you're not facing some kind of adverse circumstance, I have to wonder if we're on the same team. Because it is such a part of the Christian walk. It's not just you and your battle. So I want to ask you, who's, who's walking with you right now? Who is encouraging you? Now, I, I get it. Every single one of us. And I am a textbook introvert. It is this way. We have our vertical, individual, personal relationship with God. Absolutely. But at the same time, we need one another. We do. We need each other. Because the enemy loves for us to feel completely isolated and alone in our sin And in our suffering. And if he can make you feel isolated in either one of those things, it's not a good place. Mutual connection. Number five. Hopeful reflection. Hopeful reflection. Just remember who's writing this passage of scripture. This was Simon Peter. The rock. Nobody knew better than Simon Peter what it was like to fail miserably. Lord, I'll go with you even to death. Little servant girl comes up to him by the fire. Hey, you were you were with that guy they just arrested and they're going to crucify. Oh, no, no, not not me. 
Wasn't me. Third time, he's calling down a curse from heaven on himself, swearing he doesn't know Jesus. So Peter knew about pride and not just being humbled, but also humiliated. And he had also suffered. But get this. If the legend of Peter being martyred, being executed, is true, which was that he said, I'm not, they were going to crucify him. He said, I'm not even worthy to die in the same way that Jesus did. And they crucified him upside down. He was about to suffer. If that's true, he was about to suffer a lot more. And this is the perspective on suffering that he offers us. After we've done all those things, the next part, and after you have suffered a little while. Sure doesn't seem like it's a little while when we're in the middle of it. But after perspective, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, for beautiful words, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see, one day, our pride is not going to be an issue anymore. And there's not going to be anxieties to cast, and there's not going to be an enemy to resist or suffering to endure, because the day is coming when we will be number six, beholding perfection. And the last part of that passage, he says... To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Everything that's going on in our lives right now, individually, as a church, as a nation, all of that is marching to a glorious conclusion. And he will reign forever and ever. Let's go to prayer. God, right now, the best that we know how to do, wherever we are, we want to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. We want to seek refuge in you. We want to cast our anxieties on you, knowing that you care for us. And we look to you. Thank you for the suffering. Thank you for the things that you allow in our lives. For our good and for your glory. And I pray that we would rest in the assurance. As we cast all of our anxieties on you because you care for us. We love you and thank you. We do ask these things in your name and for your glory. 